Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast, where we explore how to accelerate the future. Imagine a world of abundance, longer lives, clean energy, transparent markets, robots and AI doing the toiling labor. Why don't we have those things yet? Join us as we explore the biggest problem that holds back frontier tech, overregulation. Now we have real solutions, startup cities, network states, and on-chain finance. Please find ways to support us in the show notes. Now enjoy this episode. All right, Balaji, welcome to Italia. All right, good to be here. You guys hear me? Yeah? All right, good. How do you feel and how was your trip to get here? Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> easy? It was good. It was good. It was, uh, well, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, I'm glad I'm here. It's awesome. Good to see everybody here. Yeah. Great. Balaji, why is longevity the ultimate technology? Well, it gives us time to do everything else. So, you know, if uh, I wrote this uh, article called The Purpose of Technology, and essentially the premise is if you look at every technology, it says, oh, this is better, this is faster, this is cheaper, this is an improvement in some sense. And you can say, okay, why is it cheaper? It costs less money. Okay, less money means less units of time to buy that, it means less of your life was spent on buying that thing. Uh, faster, it means it takes less time to, to get somewhere, for example, which means it saves life. Uh, better, often it means, okay, it's just cognitive overhead to figure out how the thing works. So almost every technology is, in a sense, saving you some seconds or minutes or hours or days of life. And, uh, you know, whereas inflation, for example, is costing you life because your stored wealth, which you spent time to get, is getting diluted away by the state. So longevity is kind of like upstream of a lot of things. It's our, it's our actual stockpile of wealth. And what is, um, what is keeping us from advancing more rapidly? when it comes to longevity. Yeah, so I had this tweet a little while ago where, uh, you know, if you're, and I think somebody here paraphrased it at one of the uh, talks, but, um, you know, the, the quote, if you're serious about software, build your own hardware, the, uh, the version of it that I believe in is if you're serious about technology, you need your own sovereignty. And the reason for that is that if you look at every conflict that's happening now in, in tech, if you look at um, SpaceX versus the FAA, if you look at, self-driving cars and crews having troubles in San Francisco. If you look at how tech guys in general are having troubles in San Francisco, how Delaware is attacking Elon, how uh, you know, AI is being attacked by the New York Times, obviously how crypto is being attacked by the SEC, and obviously how biotech is being held back by the FDA but for so many years. On and on and on, I could give a whole list of examples like this. And fundamentally, the thing is that um, it's an error, I think, to simply petition the existing government. Like, you know, there's a friend of mine and he had some list of policies that he had proposed and he tweeted them out. And at the end he wrote, we need to do X, Y, and Z, please, right? And the thing is, like, does, did Netflix say please to Blockbuster? No, right? Did Apple say please to BlackBerry, right? Is, is Amazon asking, you know, mother may I nicely to Barnes and Noble? No, right? Uh, you know, when, when it comes to companies, like, you know, we, we punch through the body, right? You know, like Bruce Lee doesn't like go like a little love tap like this. He like punches in a way that the heart flies out the back, right? And so like the, the new disruptor actually envisions the complete replacement of the previous system, right? They're not messing around. They're actually thinking, okay, how can I, you know, have a world without Blockbuster? That Blockbuster isn't even on Netflix's mind, right? It's, it's something that's a, it's a speck of dust, right? Maybe it's strong at the beginning, but it's fundamentally got the wrong ideas and it'll be weak later. And that's in the way, like all these institutions that are holding one back, you're not saying please to them. You might need to negotiate with them. You might need to take them seriously for now because they're obstacles. 
but you're not actually asking them for permission in, in your own head. You might have 100% compliance, but 0% subservience. Does that make sense, right? So you operate within the letter of the law, you come right up to the line and you look them right in the eye like this, and you hand over your papers and smile and you get through and then you do what, what you, you need to do, right? And uh, that game of brinksmanship, one way of thinking about it is, it's essentially like social war against the institutions, okay? It is not really peacetime because institutions will be fighting you back. And if you think you're gonna be able to get to longevity or you think you're gonna be able to get, really get to Mars or you think you even, you even have better taxis, right? without fighting an all-out social war against the institutions and the establishment, you're not gonna get there, okay? Just think about Travis, right? Travis who, you know, pour some liquor out for Travis, he died for our sins. Um, Travis Kalanick, right, of Uber. You know, Uber was decapitated, why? Because they built better taxis, okay? So now think about what it's gonna to be to innovate in biotech, right? Like the battle with the FDA hasn't really begun. The battle with the SEC is ongoing, massive multi-billion dollar thing costing all kinds of money, all kinds of lawsuits, and bit by bit by bit, we are pushing them back, we're doing voice within the US, and we're fighting them, them globally, right? But this is just a, this is like a quasi-military campaign in a sense, and so it's a negative as well as a positive. I just wanna stress that part. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So your opinions um, on that front are based on personal experience working oh, in health yeah. and biotech. Can you talk a bit about that and your interactions with some of these institutions? Oh yeah, sure. So, boy, so much I could say about this. Uh, so, you know, some of you guys might know I was I was uh, I was asked to be number two at FDA. So I know these guys. Okay, um, and you know, fundamentally, um, I mentioned this in the previous talk, but it's easier to start Bitcoin than to reform the Fed, and it's easier to start a new country than to reform the FDA, and it's easier to start a new city than to reform San Francisco. Right? These are fail states, fails institutions. Insofar as one's engaging with them, you're, in, you're engaging with them simply to show how wrong they are, to build a following for what's right. But I would warn that it's easier to emotionally align people against something, and then you have to economically align them for something. So a lot of people will be against what you're against, but then there's 15 different directions in which to, to go forward. So the answer is basically, I mean, nowadays, we, we, now that Twitter is uncensored, more and more examples of institutional failure are, are cropping up, right? You're seeing you know, kindergartens that don't teach. You're seeing all kinds of crazy stuff and it's not being censored anymore. It's just seeing total failure. And, but you're also seeing that when they're unmasked, these people are still really mean, right? And why are they mean? It's because it's like, it's like the Soviet Union. They have jobs programs where this failed state is employing millions of people that wouldn't otherwise have jobs. Say so no, if the tech guys win, they're out of a job, just like the Soviet communists knew that if capitalism won, they were out of a job. So even if they didn't like communism, they liked their job. So they're gonna fight to the absolute bitter end within their own uh, redoubts, which is why we have to build from outside places like this. And we also have to have guys on the inside and do both at the same time. So you held a conference last year in Amsterdam, the Network State Conference, and your message there was we're going from theory to practice. Yes. And also we're building parallel institutions. Yes. Can you give sort of the story of that agenda Absolutely. where we're at right now? Absolutely. So, you know, there's a few phrases that I'm, I, I should write posts on this, or actually I'm working on Network State V2, Network State Movie, so, you know, stay tuned. Um, but... Um, Basically, so the, the, the parallel establishment, what does that mean, right? Uh, you can break it down into the parallel societies, which are physical societies like Prospera, like cul-de-sac in Arizona, like Cabin and, and, and others that, that we, we, you guys know about. So those are physical societies. And then there's 
uh, parallel institutions that are that are replacing, for example, education or transportation or um, finance. You know, crypto is like parallel finance, right? And you can think of these as like uh, you know vertical solutions where. Prospera is, you know, like a vertical solution, and then horizontal solutions that replace education or medicine or finance. And once you start thinking of them on a grid like this, um, a society like Prospera can now adapt something new in terms of parallel medicine, which is this. This is longevity, right? But it could also adopt uh, parallel finance, like crypto. Like you, you come up on the on the road here and you see Bitcoin accepted here, right? And so once you start thinking about it this way, we've got like the the physical stuff and we've got the digital stuff and they combine in terms of a way of building these parallel societies, these startup societies, and these parallel institutions for education and, and medicine and, and finance, and you put them together, you've got the parallel system. The parallel system is one which can stand up as an alternative to the existing system and it does so by recruiting people away from it, okay? Um, by using the internet to pull people who are, you know, upper middle class or you know, elite within the existing system and pull them over to the new system. The reason you do that is, you know, when we pull Larry Fink over and he is anti-Bitcoin in 2021, we pull him over and he's pro-Bitcoin, that's not just a minus one for the establishment and a plus one for us. It's like minus 10 billion for the establishment and plus 10 billion for us. So it's like a plus 20 billion flip, right? So those top nodes, you pull them into the parallel establishment, whether they're using your parallel educational services, whether they're visiting your parallel societies, and that just does so much, uh, that, that's worth like one person like that is worth like a, you know, a thousand normies like being displeased about something but not actually making the jump to something new. I'm all for normies, but by targeting like upper middle class elites and, and flipping them over, you just have a lot more bang for your buck if you have a limited amount of time to sell people on something. So that's how we actually start. We build a parallel establishment, we recruit folks over, and when there's enough elite defection, when there's enough counter elites that have moved over, the existing system just collapses, just like the Soviet Union just collapsed like this, you know, and, and it flipped over to the USA. So internet capitalism will beat this sort of Soviet Union that's arisen in, in the US, unfortunately. Yeah, so let's review a bit layer ones, right? So where do you see, how much progress have we made in the last couple of years, where are we at right now, and what are, you see as kind of the next important breakthroughs that we need to make? So, so by layer ones, we mean like Prospera, for example. So Prospera's done a phenomenal job. Eric, much respect. Where's Eric? Is Eric here? Okay, I'll clap for Eric. Okay, he's done. Gabe is here. Eric is, uh, where is he? Is he there? Gabe, here's the call. Okay, great, great, great. Yeah, no, I mean like, essentially, if you think about how hard, L1 I think is a good analogy because it's really hard to get digital sovereignty with Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana. It's really, really hard. It's a non-reproducible process. And uh, you know the level of mud wrestle that some of you know that Eric and Prospera have had to do and the Prospera founders have had to do with the Honduran government, that's the messy and nasty part, right? Uh, and they've fought them to a standstill with all the political warfare that we, we, we need, frankly. Um, and because of that, it's like that, you know, that meme where the, there's a soldier and he's standing over, you know, like someone sleeping on the bed and all the knives and stuff, right? So someone should do that where like Eric is like standing there and taking all the knives and stuff so we can have a nice little conference here, right? So we can do stuff like mini circles, so we can do this other type of stuff. That political leadership is, is really very crucial, right? And um, I'd also say, I think a cul-de-sac is going quite well. They managed to build all the way through the pandemic, which is quite difficult. I think cabin is going well. I feel the physical stuff is starting to emerge and I saw a lot of great presentations here. Um, and I, I think this is 
uh, I don't know, I don't know the exact analogies, like crypto 2010-ish or whatever. There's there's some initial kindling for a fire here. It's it's like it is more than zero to one. It's like it exists. This thing exists, but we haven't yet had the breakout moment where like something makes a billion dollars, right? That's that's I think what's next, where this becomes economically real, and that might take some time. Okay, um, but uh, but it, it's starting. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what you learned about uh, maybe from Prospera, but also in general, what could be the playbook for layer ones? Because I interpreted your book, The Network State, kind of as a strategy innovation. Right. Previous project were like land and jurisdiction first, and it took off a long time and was a lot of cost. And then you flipped that on its head and said community first. Yes. So first online and then on land. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So cloud first, land last, but not land never. That short phrase has, uh, you, you can't embed too many twists and turns in one phrase, you know, it's like uh, everything in moderation, including moderation, okay, right? So, so sometimes you can embed a twist in a, in a short phrase, but often, um, you know, so there's some complexity embedded in that where there's a good chunk of people who say, why don't we do it all digital? And another good chunk of people who say, oh, you're, you're stupid internet guys who are doing everything digital, it's not a real country, right? So. The, the kind of version three that answers both those objections is cloud first, land last, but not land never, meaning start in the cloud, build a community in the cloud. That's what everybody knows here. Everybody's got mobile phones, they've got laptops, all your friends have mobile phones and laptops and probably cryptocurrency and so on. Build that online community, and now that you've got this churning, steaming, glowing thing in the cloud, you can descend on the land like a lightning bolt, right? The clearing just opens, boom, you come down like this, like trees are felled, girders go up, right? And that can happen anywhere around the world, right? Anywhere around the world that maybe you speak the language, you've got local contacts, you can build there, you can find a contractor there, you can build what I call, you know, maybe a startup village, right? Which is what kind of what this is. And um, this is really the formula by which the lords of the cloud actually become lords of the land, okay? Just, just to motivate this, right? Who here, everybody here knows Stripe, the company Stripe, yeah, okay. So the founder of Stripe, you know, Patrick Collison, really smart guy, um, you know, was in San Francisco several years ago. And San Francisco passed this stupid tax that would have, it was like some more money for drug addicts or whatever, but it was a, a stupid tax that would have been, I mean, that's what all, all of San Francisco is. So um, it, it, was, it was basically like Prop C or something like that. And uh, it, it, it was uh, something that would have, being very injurious to Stripe's business in particular because it was like a gross tax on sales as opposed to their profits, some insane kind of thing. So he had to move out of San Francisco to South San Francisco, causing a loss of tax revenue, both present and future to San Francisco, and of course a loss to himself and to, and to Stripe. And so the question one should ask is, wait a second, that's really unusual that a self-made billionaire with millions of people around the world that a lot of developers know, that's a fairly accomplished person, uh, you know, that kind of person usually has some power on the land, right? In, in olden times, someone who was a self-made billionaire in Cleveland, Ohio, would have some influence with the mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, and maybe really stupid taxes wouldn't get passed, right? But we have this unusual situation where if people who have millions and millions of followers and billions of dollars, but no power in their own backyard, okay? So you can build a billion dollar business all online, but you need a billion permits to build something in your backyard. This is the fundamental strain tension on our world right now between the network and the state. This is Elon versus the administration every single day on Twitter. This is Bitcoin versus the Fed. This is you know longevity versus traditional medicine, which was gonna gear up in, in this decade. This is everything, right? And conceptualizing that, 
Um, we, we have to actually conceptualize that first as an actual tribal rivalry between, you know, whether you call it gray tribe, internet tribe, tech tribe, and blue tribe that currently runs the U.S. government and Western institutions. Like anything that sort of shies away from that and tries to say, oh, we're all in this together or something like that, simply doesn't engage with the, with the reality of the situation, which is who has root, right? Will Blue Tribe be able to regulate you all into the ground, bankrupt your companies, take your money, stop the Bitcoin, stop all this nonsense, go back to, go push it back into the garage, right? Like they tried to push Uber back into the garage, right? Um, will they be able to do that? Or will we be able to get to Mars, explore the stars? That is the fundamental who whom of this whole thing. The Lenin whom whom, the Schmidtian friend enemy, you know, however you want to call it. So once you see this, the state has a recipe, a plan to win, which is just regulate and tax you into oblivion. Okay, this is section 174. Anybody know about section 174? Okay, Google section 174, it's pretty bad, okay? This is what Delaware has done where 50 unicorns died in a day. You know, $55 billion was just chopped off of Elon's comp, okay? That's, I mean, Anderson Hart's is a $30 billion fund. So $55 billion getting incinerated in a day. It might get restored with some new ruling, but 55 billion, they're willing to kill endless numbers of unicorns, throw them into a wood chipper just to retain their power. That is blue, Blue's you know, goal here. So gray needs a strategy to win. What is, what is a losing strategy? A losing strategy is please, right? A losing strategy is mother may I, right? A losing strategy is to ask for reform when what, what is being pointed at you is a gun. The winning strategy is to figure out how one can uh, create or cooperate with or merge with a state of one's own. And there's many different strategies for that, right? There's lots of small countries around the world that want tech guys there, right? That want your capital, that want your investment, whether it's Palau, whether it's, you know, the Marshall Islands, whether it's El Salvador, lots of small states want you to be there, right? And lots of big states don't. So give them their wish, right? Let, you know, that, that's a, that is a consummation devoutly to be wished, right? But without a plan to win, you'll lose. And people here, I think, understand that actually you're, you're all the way out here, thousands of miles away, because you know that you know, getting some degree of tactical exit is necessary, but it's a tactical exit, right? You build up power, and then you can eventually come back and reform. Just like, you know, for example, all the Puritans, they came to, to America, they came to the US, they built up something very powerful, and then that was an example for the rest of the world. They came back like a comet 170 years later, right? It might not take that long for us. Go ahead. Yeah, um, can you talk a bit more about the demand factors, like migration-wise, sure. for layer ones or existing states? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I, all right. Now, now I'll say some things that are more controversial. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so basically, um, I, you know, when when you think about so borders, let's talk about borders because it's in the news and, and so on and so forth. And people sometimes uh, mistake me for an open borders person. I'm not actually an open borders person. Um, the right to exit is a fundamental right, uh, so you, you should be able to leave, but not necessarily enter. And for example, in your house, you can't keep somebody under house arrest. They should be able to leave at any time. But you also have the right to determine who comes into your home. A, your company, nobody's a slave. They can quit at any time. It's at will. You know, most employment is at will. But you get to choose who you hire for your company, right? With your, with your uh, wallet, right? You should be able to spend on just about anything. But other people can't necessarily just come into your wallet and, and spend, right? So that concept of kind of a one-way door where you can exit, but not just anybody can enter, that's digital border control, right? That's, for example, every Slack, every 
you know, Google Doc that you've ever admined. Everybody here is admin to Google Doc, and they determine, they're the owner of it, and they determine, okay, who is allowed in, and what are their permissions, can they view, can they edit, right? We've been habituated to that on the internet, that you have digital borders, hard digital borders that are enforced by cryptography, right? NFTs allow you to scale this outside of like a Google, uh, Google Doc style environment to have a community of people where if they have the NFT, they're part of the community, and if they are not, they are not. And that can actually even extend to the physical world. I'd love to see NFT door locks and stuff here at Prospera. You start actually having the digital community become part of the physical, right? So what defines a community is their digital borders, right? That is what defines a community. Even as legacy borders get eroded in the Western world, digital borders get reconstituted, and your true neighbors and your true community members are those who are part of your digital community. Now, I will absolutely say that in the digital world, these are not as hard borders in some ways. They're hard in one way, which is cryptographic, but they're not hard in another way, which is you can belong to many separate communities at the same time, right? Then the second principle is basically self-determination and you know, like self-organization, you, you can join where you, where you choose. Anyway, the, the, the point about this is, remember, remind me of your question, because you asked. You got yeah, so it was around um, sort of the demand factors. The demand factor. So we can't talk about immigration without talking about borders. Once you have digital border control, then you have an immigration policy, right? Who, is, who can apply to your, to your society or not, right? And this is actually of crucial importance. You can always become less selective. It's extremely hard to become more selective. It's like, uh, it's like, it's like prices, okay? It's all, you can always cut prices. It's very hard to raise them, okay? So start selective. Now, we've, I've got a post coming out. If you go to, I mentioned this a few days ago, but if you go to the, the networkstate.com slash poll, this is a data set I just need to finish analyzing it and I'll publish on it. But fundamentally, it, it polls a bunch of people at the Network State Conference, asks them like on 50 individuals, minus three to plus three, what's their sentiment? 50 ideologies, minus three to plus three. Like, what's their sentiment on Jordan Peterson? What's their sentiment on nuclear power and so on? And that gives an ideology vector for each person at the conference. And I've clustered those, and I've clustered those near me, and, I've, and Vitalik took it, and a few other people I know took it, so that we're like landmarks or whatever on, on this thing, and we've got followers of our own. And so now you can start seeing network space, like the equivalent of hills and mountains and valleys are the you know, sort of ideology clusters that you see in network space, okay, and in ideology space. So one of the things you want to do is, maybe you can take my poll, maybe you can make one of your own, okay, and build the ideology vector for your community. And then you assess everybody who's joining your community on the base of their mapping to that ideology vector, and this quantifies culture fit. This can be semi-automated. You still have to make sure they're answering the questions accurately, but this is a way of actually selecting people that will vibe with your culture, and that's crucial if you're like living near them, right? You know, this is, it's not quite a marriage, but they're like next door, okay? And you're filtering them from the entire internet of billions of people. And there's lots of people who will maybe agree with you on ideology, but they're morning people and you're night people, or they like loud music and you don't, or whatever. So like filtering the heck out of your inbound list for your start society is really, really important. Think of it as being as, at least as rigorous as a college application. And in fact, you know, applying to your college, your company, and your country are actually the same thing. You know why? Because if you're Indian or Chinese or foreign or what have you, many, many of the engineering students you see are, they do well in engineering in, let's say, India or China. Okay, it used to be in China, let's say India. They apply to, let's say, MIT, okay, for a master's degree. So they're applying to a college. They get an F-1 visa, then they get an H-1B visa when they apply to a company. And then they get their green card or permanent residency when they apply to the country, right? So applying to a college, applying to a company, applying to a country are kind of the same thing, 
for millions of people in much of the world, even if it's not really thought about that way, right? At least certainly, let's say hundreds of thousands of people. I think there's probably millions of H-1Bs, but you know, if you add it all up, but, but certainly hundreds of thousands. So the point is your community should be as selective as a company or a you know, college or country admission and really combine all of those things. And you'll face immense pressure to lower standards, to include everybody, right? This is um, meritocracy and excellence, not inclusion for the sake of it, right? That's, you know, it's, it's different. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I'd like to get your views on pop-up cities because to me, they address something that I think um, was a bit of a gap in the yes. network state strategy as you laid it out because I saw many projects that are starting online you know, many companies, the state strategy is really difficult where you have to build things that are very different in, state, in a staged approach because you don't, you, you, what you do in the beginning becomes your DNA. So you become really good at, I don't know, land governance, but then it's really hard to get good at community too later or the other way around. So I think pop-up cities where really um, you can put an MVP out there where you have both, you're both in real life and you have this filter from an online community. Yeah, so I actually, uh, you know, maybe I should have stressed it more, but 10 years ago, actually now 11 years ago, in 2013, if you, there's, a, there's an image, if you Google Bologias space scale, space duration, space cloud, space formation. So I had a chart which has been, I think, actually maybe you're a repurposer, which has the scale and duration of cloud formation. Vitalik repurposed it. Also, he was saying this because he read it with, from you. That exactly, yeah. that's right. And so essentially, if you go, if you pull up that chart, maybe someone can put it on screen over here if you find it. It's a table which has the scale and duration of cloud formations. It's on Google Images you'll, if you look at BioGS. And um, if you take that table, basically I was like, okay, for example, you could have two people, they meet up for a day. That's like coffee with a LinkedIn contact, right? You could have uh, two people meet up for a month. That's like a remote worker coming on, on site. You could have Two people meet up for a year, that's like someone dating off of Match.com. Or you have two people meeting up for 10 years, that's like eHarmony.com, them getting married, right? Then you can also go in duration. You can have two people meeting up um, for a day, but you can have 10 people meeting up for a day, or 100 people, or 1,000 people, or 10,000 people, and you get larger and larger, larger meetups. And the terra incognita, the thing we hadn't yet seen, was tens of thousands of people meeting up for 10 years. And the adjacent that we hadn't seen was like, 200 people meeting up for two months. So that's exactly why I think Vitalik picked Zuzulu. We were chatting about it. He was like, okay, that's a cloud formation we haven't yet seen is hundreds of people coming together for months. So let's do that and let's push on the duration part, you know, and see if we can uh, make that happen. And so that's, so the pop-up thing was kind of in there. It just wasn't called pop-up, right? It was called increasing the scale and duration of, of these things, right? But I agree with you that it's a very good thing to do because it's actually pretty hard to do that in its own right. Like, there's probably a lot of logistics in, in getting this thing going. Oh, no logistics. No logistics. Easy. Easy. <laughs> Everything right? happens on its own. Everything happens Completely on its own. Completely decentralized. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. And that's the thing is, uh, you know, great job, by the way, by, by you and by Lawrence. Like, this is an amazing, you know, event. And our team. Yes. Great job, Gary. It's... It's, it's hard to make something look easy, and, uh, and you've, you've done a really great job. So, All right, keep going. So I have two more questions, okay. and then we can open it up to the audience. Yeah. So if you want to already um, form a line on that side, I think, this time. Good. Um, so to, the first question, 
uh, crypto, right? So the title of the conference, Crypto Cities. It's my impression that uh, projects we're talking about, there is no real crypto first project, although all of them are crypto friendly, mm -hmm. right? So do you think crypto is really kind of essential to make yeah. these projects? So it's interesting. Like basically there's different words. There's Bitcoin, there's crypto, there's Web3 and so on. Um, you know, the thing is that crypto has, for some people, the connotation of day trading and, you know, like, you know, just making money and short-term oriented. And Web3 maybe a little bit more like building apps. And Web3, I think, is now working with Farcaster and so on. We've got a Web3 Twitter that's now working. So, so things are actually blowing up now. Um, I would say that this community is, it, there's two kinds of people in crypto. There are those who are in it for a quick buck. And there's those, well, there's more than two, but there's those who are in it for a quick buck. And there's those who are kind of long-term ideologues, product builders, or what have you. And so I think a lot of the folks who are crypto-friendly fall into that second category. And they didn't just want to launch a coin for fast money or what have you, which is why they were community first rather than coin first. And I actually agree with all that. I think that's the right way of doing it. You roll out the coin or the token or the digital asset or what have you as an organizing tool for your community, but you build a community first. This is, I think, why Farcaster is being more successful, for example, than, um, than some other decentralized social media protocols. Is he did the hard work of building a Dan did the hard work of building a community first, and then uh, now is kind of the monetization is happening. But if you have the money first, uh, you're seeing Idiocracy. I haven't seen the movie. Okay, have you seen the movie Idiocracy? There's there's We've scene. seen it. Yeah, yeah. There, right. right. So there, there's a there's a scene where the guy's like. Wow, you like sex and money too? Me too, oh my God, right? And so like money is basically the universal thing that everybody likes. So if you just start a community and you're, and you're like, I'm offering money, yeah, you'll get a lot of people piling into your Discord or whatever, but they are the most short-term oriented people imaginable and they'll sort of joke and say, when airdrop? And then as soon as, you know, as soon as, it's like meant to be a joke, it's like kind of funny, but then as soon as they get it, they'll, you know, boom, sell it, or, you know, they're, they're just not really there for the, insofar as you're saying, oh, it's a space discord, and, you know, it's a space token, everybody will kind of go along with it, but it's almost like the, the, the branding of a slot machine, okay, like a slot machine of Vegas has got space logos on the outside, right, so I'm, I'm glad that people didn't go coin first, it's a little bit like going IPO first, you know, it's a little bit like raising venture. Yeah, this is the chart that I was talking about, right? A classification of cloud formations by scale and duration. So I did this in 2013, which is why some of these are older references. But right here, Vitalik and I were talking and he's like, it's a log scale on this axis. That's like day, month, year, 10 years. And it's also log scale over here. And we were like, let's push right there, which is like between 100 to 1,000 people, between one month to a year. And Zuzlu is like right there, okay? And that's, that's why, and this is kind of like that too, right? So, yeah. Very cool. Um, do you, would you like to know something about the audience or about what we're doing here or? I mean, I, I think I know what the audience is. It's like, a, but go ahead, should I ask a question of them? Oh yeah, well go to, go to the networkstate.com front slash P-O-L-L um, and, uh, and fill that in if you have time. Um, it's a long survey, but it'll be helpful for you to see where you land in ideology space. And I'll publish the results of it and maybe send you back your own ideology vector or whatever. Will you be able to see who's from Italia and who isn't? Um, it'll be a surge of not things coming in now, so I can just okay. basically cluster it that way. Okay. You know. We actually are also thinking- You can put in the notes similar. also. There's, there's, a, there's a notes yeah, yeah. field, so just write Vitalia in there. Okay, so, yeah. okay. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars in your favorite podcast app and consider subscribing to our Substack. I appreciate your support that makes this show possible. See you in the next one.